If you ever need to call them, you get a call back because politicians are just like other. Most politicians don't make enough money to to retire on this. Most politicians, especially local city council people and local city mayors, it's practically volunteer. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Deals and money. We are constantly seeking deals and money as real estate investors, and I bet you're having a challenge right now, especially with deals, if you're like most real estate investors, because it's tough to find deals right now. But here's the thing. There's a competitive advantage out there that when implemented, it will help you accomplish your objective of getting more deals and or getting more investors. And that is having a great follow-up system. Having a great follow-up is one of the keys to success in real estate. And follow-up boss is the leading CRM for real estate. This is the system you need in place so you can reach out to owners and brokers directly for deals or you can follow up with your investors and you do it all in one spot. The CRM makes it 10 times faster to call and text owners, then integrates those into a software so nothing slips through the cracks. The follow-up boss conversion system and powerful management tools help align your methods and drive growth that otherwise it could have been missed and probably would have been missed. Go to followupboss.com forward slash best ever to get a system in place. And if you need help, they got you covered. Follow-up boss offers experts seven days a week you can pick up the phone and speak to an actual human being anytime during business hours. Visit followupboss.com forward slash best ever to check out how much time you could save by streamlining your follow-up process. Best ever listeners, they're treating you extra special. You get an extended 30-day free trial, twice the length of the normal trial for a limited time. Go to followupboss.com forward slash best ever and perfect your follow-up. Best ever listeners, welcome back to Cincinnati best ever real estate investor mastermind we are here for part two with glenn kukla this is a skill set saturday we're going to talk about the skills that helped him in his commercial development business to get through the great recession we'll also have some q a for those people who are here attending the meetup live in this episode as well so glenn Let's dive right in. All the best ever listeners just heard you discuss your career on the whole with some of the highlights and probably lowlights of the Great Recession. And we talked about the clear skill that you have developed in building relationships with key partners and critical people that have not only brought you deals, both buyers and sellers for your deals, but also helped you get through some of the properties during the Great Recession that went cash flow negative when you weren't able to make your mortgage payments. Tell us more about how you went about building relationships with commercial lenders for those development deals, 040506, that brought two thirds of them to want to keep working with you when they weren't getting their payments. Sure. There's the old saying that there's only one thing in this life that you have complete control over, and that's your integrity. And I believe if you conduct yourself in a manner of integrity, early on in the process, middle of the process, later of the process, eventually it will catch up and pay dividends. And I feel that when we were putting together these real estate deals and requesting money from these different lenders, it was building on our portfolio of previous properties and showing that we were doing good work. We were being honest. We were 
being good partners in the community, developing good real estate that was good for the community, bringing in good tenants, that that helped build the character of our company. And that's what allowed lenders to keep coming back and giving, giving us money. And that's also what allowed us to get a lot better cooperation when we did have to default on some mortgages. So it's that transparency when you talk to those people. What else were you doing to demonstrate that integrity to potential lenders for your deals? Is it really just transparency, open your books, show them everything? Is that the secret or were there other things that were required of you to build these relationships? Networking is a big part of it. So before I was a real estate developer, I was actually a commercial loan officer with Cincinnati Development Fund. They're still around to this day. They're a great private nonprofit lender based in downtown. And they pull money from other lenders to do deals that each lender wouldn't do individually. So these lenders like Fifth Third Bank and PNC pull their money to take on risk that they don't want to individually take. So when I worked for that bank, I got to meet a lot of these commercial lenders. So then when I went to private development, I already had the relationship with those commercial lenders. So just getting out there, again, just networking, even if you network by means of having a different career, but that career pivots you into what you ultimately want to do. A lot of people start out as realtors, which is a great way to network, and they end up becoming very successful landlords. I've met some realtors here tonight, and that's a great way to build that network and prove your integrity to the community. Some of it also, honestly, is just the quality of the work that you do. These lenders have gone through and done construction inspections, and when you borrow money and they want to see the work in progress, they can kind of tell. Cincinnati's a big city, but every community is small, whether it's a building inspector or the construction inspector or even just subcontractors. They figure out pretty much right away if you're a shitbird or if you're a good guy. And the good guys seem to be the ones that keep getting the good deals and word gets out. So again, it's just conducting yourself in a good way and doing good work, but also just being outgoing and going to things like these meetups and listening to Slocum's podcast every week, but also just had lunch with Ash Patel about a month ago. And every time I have lunch with him, I feel like I've networked with 10,000 people. Just don't be afraid to open your wallet and buy lunch for people. I'll buy you a beer. I'll buy a lunch. I'll buy a coffee. You did Ash let you pay for lunch? No, he did. Although he should have, because I offered. But you know, always offer to pay for lunch. You know, just bribe people to meet up with you for beers and lunches, and, and having that kind of connection. If you're an introvert, it's going to be harder. There's other ways to build wealth and build a portfolio of real estate if you're an introvert. But if you're an extrovert, whether you're naturally an extrovert or you can fake it, it helps. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, and if you're an introvert, fill the tank at home and then go network. Another piece to integrity that you talked about in our last conversation. I'm paraphrasing you, Glenn, so correct me here. Part of operating with integrity and valuing your relationships is confronting your problems. Mm -hmm. When you know that you're not going to be able to come correct in a business relationship, you haven't shied away from that. You said there were times when you wanted a property to take the keys back because you didn't see a future of cash flow. But when you knew that you weren't going to be able to perform sufficiently for your lenders to be able to make your payments to your lenders, that a part of your success came from approaching those lenders to say, we're not going to make it. We still believe that we're the best person to operate this asset and lender that you have lent against is still in the best hands with us, even when we're not making our payments. That's exactly what we did. We were proactive. At the moment that we knew we couldn't pay the mortgage, we went to them right away and said, this is why. And here's all the bookkeeping. Here's the PL and the balance sheet. 
And you're not just in real estate, but in life, if you cause a problem, but you're the first one to say, I own this problem, you're going to get a lot more forgiveness from the other side than if you try to run and hide and then they bust you trying to cover up and, and lie about it. Look, there are times where you time the information that you want to get out. You don't want to be so transparent that you're explicit with information that would be better timed if you waited for a day or two or something to change. So I'm not saying that you have to be transparent about everything all the time. Sometimes you do need to be discreet, but in terms of problems, the best way to resolve financial problems is to own them and you immediately get a lot more cooperation out of the other side. Well, same thing like if you're contracting, if you hire a contractor and the contractor is not doing a good job because it's something you caused and you go to them and say, I'm sorry, I caused this. I feel like you're going to get a lot more cooperation out of that contractor and they're going to be a lot more flexible working with you versus getting into that blame game thing. You shared previously about a development deal in Newport, Kentucky, which is just across the river from downtown Cincinnati, where the cost to develop the warehouse into 41 apartments and a bunch of retail was like 5 million. And you ended up being able to buy the note on the property for two and a half. Talk us through the steps in that process. Buildings developed, partially occupied, not cash flowing. You had to go back to the bank, Chase Bank. Mm. They agreed to let you continue in operation and make partial payments. And then they sold the note for takeover from there. They sold the note, probably we never found out, but I think they sold the note for about 25 cents on the dollar. Was it a $4 million note? Or... A, well, there were a couple of the lenders involved. So I think some of the lenders just wrote off their piece, but um, everything got bundled, I think, by Chase and they sold the whole deal to a private capital company called Silverpoint out of um, East Coast somewhere. We don't know what they sold it to them for. We're guessing 20 cents on the dollar, 30 cents on the dollar. So after we defaulted on the loan, but told Chase Bank that we wanted to work through this and we still wanted to manage the property, they said, yes, you can manage the property. Just send in your P&L, your, your profit loss statement and send in 92% of your cash flow. And they then sold it to the private capital company who basically was our new lender. So we started sending them the mortgage payment. Uh, they actually adjusted the mortgage down. They said, okay, now your mortgage is two and a half million. So your payment's only $8,000 a month, not 12,000. At that point, rents are going back up. We're like, great, we'll we can start doing the full monthly payment of, of 8,000 now that the, the payment is lower. So we got in their good graces and we communicated with them very well. And we were always in contact with them, sharing all of our financials, letting them inspect the property. And then it was just kind of luck. I mean, after about a year and a half, they said, well, if you want to just go ahead and buy the note from us, you can buy the note. It's two and a half million bucks. How did you finance the purchase of the note? We went through First Financial Bank, which is a great lender. First Financial Bank is like one of those lenders, I think, that they're big, that they can do big deals, but they're based in Hamilton. So you're dealing with local folks. So First Financial Bank did the refinance to take out Silver Point Capital. And what did that debt look like? It was like about two and a half million bucks. And I think it was like a 20-year amortization. I can't remember the rate back then, but it was probably like, you know, four and a half percent. So... So you got 100% financing to buy off the note. Yeah, we did get 100% financing. Um, because at that point, the building had then started to slowly appreciate back. So maybe it was worth $3.2 million And we um, got 80% loan to value. And worked out great. I think maybe we put a couple hundred thousand dollars of cash in. We built up a little bit of money and putting it back in those deals. Nice. So hopefully, all of our best ever listeners and all of you here at the Best Ever Mastermind have learned something about the value of building relationships. We are going to take questions. If any of you would like to get up, go to the mic. Anything that's come from either of our conversations with Glenn that you want to ask about, feel free, feel free to go ahead and get up and ask. And, and feel free also, if you want to introduce yourself, just your name should do it. Todd Kelsey, thank you for your time. Appreciate the insight tonight. 
Slocum mentioned most of us are here are residential investors. Could you give us some insight on holding costs and expenses when you're waiting for that unicorn tenant, as you said, for like the school or the other property that you, when you're developing those? You have to budget for those. You have to factor that in because you're going to pay for those costs as you go in. A lot of times you defer those costs because you don't put money in until the unicorn comes along and then you build to suit. So for the storefronts that we would develop, we didn't do a full development. We'd do a white box, which means you're essentially turning it into a white box. You're cleaning it out. You're putting up some basic drywall, painting it white. You're not installing a furnace. You're not installing plumbing. Maybe you're bringing plumbing into the building. So you lower your carrying costs. So your carrying costs are as low as possible until you get that unicorn tenant, and then you build it out to what they need. But other than that, you do have to pay. You can't go to the bank too early in the process and say, hey, I don't have any money. You have to, you have to wait until you know, later yeah. on when you truly don't have the money. Glenn, follow-up question on that. You find an opportunity to buy a unique property that's going to require a unicorn tenant. How do you determine how much you're willing to pay for that property up front? As little as possible. Just I mean, as level as possible. I mean, really, it comes, sometimes it's coming down to the well, deal, but... You're the, you're the one with the background in finance. Do you have a ceiling for this? Do you have a way to calculate how much you'd be willing to pay? I'm not asking for exact dollar amounts because it's possible that someone who's listening would be a seller. Right. But is there a formula? Do you have calculations for figuring out how much you pay for unicorn properties? Sure. The three approaches to valuation, there's comparable sales, there's the income approach, and there's a replacement value. So I think generally you would look at either the comparable sales or the income approach and you say, okay, if one's just like this building is selling for 300,000 and 300,000 and 300,000, maybe I'll offer them 250,000. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. What's holding you back from getting into apartment building deals? Is it knowledge, fear, inability to take action, lack of support? If it's any of these things, then I suggest you consider Deal Maker Mentoring with Michael Blanc. Michael's program is the most effective program to help you syndicate your first apartment building deal. During Deal Maker Mentoring, you'll work directly with one of Michael's experienced mentors who have successfully replaced their income with apartment buildings. They've already done what you want to do, which is become financially free. So in addition to providing their own syndication experience... They've been trained in Michael's unique deal maker blueprint designed to help you do your first deal and become financially free just like them in the next one to three years. To find out more, text the word Joe to 66866. I know Michael's going to get you to where you'd like to be again. Text the word Joe to 66866. Do it right now while it's fresh on your mind and let's get you started with your own syndication business. I'd like to introduce you to my good friends over at PassiveInvesting.com, a private equity real estate firm based out of the Carolinas. PassiveInvesting.com makes it easy for you to start investing in real estate. They focus on acquiring institutional quality apartments and self-storage facilities with private accredited investor funds. They also have a real estate debt fund that offers hard money loans to local fix and flippers across the U.S., which currently has a 0% default rate. With a portfolio of over $700 million in assets and controlling over $250 million in equity, they know how to secure the best deals and how to avoid the red flags. If you are interested in learning more, please reach out directly to PassiveInvesting.com and request the free Passive investor guide that outlines the seven red flags for passive apartment and self-storage investing. Visit passiveinvesting.com forward slash red flags to download that PDF now. 
That's PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags. Did you have a lot of sales comps for a school building in an economically depressed part of Cincinnati? <laughs> Not many. That's why I offer very little. But if I were to come across a nicer school building... In a you actually paid 20,000 times more than the asking price for I that did, property. I did, which is very foolish. For anyone yeah. who didn't listen to I should have paid the a first dollar. episode... They they offered to sell it for a dollar and I countered with 20,000. Why did I do that? So when you don't have sales comps and you don't know what the income is going to be because you're waiting on a unicorn, right. the first thought that comes to my head is if I'm buying this, it needs to be cash that I have sitting in an account that doesn't require anybody else to trust in me, that doesn't require me borrowing any money. It's just a personal gamble that I'm taking and I know that I'm going to want to keep it small, but I don't know how to size that bet. So when you don't have the income approach, when you don't have sales comps, are you just going with your gut? Are you just keeping the numbers as low as you can? Is it just about how, okay, for $20,000, I can have some fun putting this together. What is it? Sometimes it's the, for $20,000, it's fun. I can put it together. So why not just take a chance? And other times it is, if you don't know what it's worth, but you've got a motivated seller, that's when I like to do the, the pay now some and pay some later, where I'm going to pay you, you know, whatever it is you need now to pay off your bills and keep your wife happy and whatnot. But we're going to share some of the equity on the upside. We don't know what that upside is. So I'm sharing some of that unknown with the seller. So in a situation like that, if I don't know how much the commercial building is worth, but I know the seller is motivated, I'm going to fight like hell to get you to agree to the I'm going to pay you some now and we're going to share profit later. I think that's almost the only way you can carve out that deal. If you don't know what the comparable sales are, you can't do the income approach because you don't have a tenant yet. You really don't know what the building is worth, but they want to sell it. They want to do something with it. Then you do the partnership thing. Have you ever had a situation like that? I'm imagining some of my own residential, like single family investment deals. The seller wasn't willing to just do it on a handshake. So there was some sort of seller carryback financing. So I like these terms, but I want to lean on the property for X amount. Has that ever come up? No, it's not. It could come up and it would, but I usually talk them out of it. I like to be in control and that's the key. If the property's in my name and I've paid cash, sure, if you want to put a, a seller held financing on it or something, that's fine. Usually you can get around, I don't want to say get around that, but you can say, well, let's do an operating agreement. And I did a deal with Jim Carmichael and Linda Novikov put together a interest in the fund that I used to buy the property. So they've got some recourse. They've got some sort of way to, to claw back that money if I screw them over. So they didn't have title of the property or any lien on the property, but they had an interest in the money that I used to buy that property, if that makes sense. And that got them comfortable. And that also makes more sense, effectively sharing a portion of the company, selling a portion of the company or giving a portion of the company yep. that purchased the property. Makes a lot more sense too, if what you're offering is a percentage of the profits from your sale, is because their profits would just equal their percentage ownership in the, in the company. So exactly. that makes way more sense than my so idea. So look, you don't need to be on the title. Let's not worry about that. I think it's called a ownership of beneficial interest. So it's, it's a legally binding document that protects that person. And you want to get the other person comfortable. I say, look, I truly have your back. We're going to make money together. I'm going to give you a little bit of money now. Let me do my thing. And then we're all going to have a big pile of money at the end of the rainbow. Um, how we get there, we don't know. It may take one year, it may take three years, it may take five years, but you're going to be protected. And we can even put it in writing with the uh, beneficial interest document. Um, but part of it is just negotiating and selling. Like, look, trust me, I want to be your buddy. We're going to make money together. And there's a little bit of kind of puffing up. Like this can be great if we just all play together nicely. Hi, Glenn. Hi, Garth. <laughs> Building relationships important. Dealing with city people and government is a different animal. So give us some advice on how you approach building relationships with 
mayors and those kinds of people, because you've done a great job in Covington and Newport, and obviously dealing with those people is a little different. Right. Okay. Great so job we, tonight, by the way. We can break it down into two buckets at least. So let's we'll start out with building inspectors first. And I'm sure some of you have um, had building inspectors you've had to deal with, but um, if anybody can smell bull, it's a building inspector. And once you get on their bull radar, you're never going to get off it. So if you've got to do things right, it's with a building inspector. I, I hate to say it. And we, we hate building inspectors. They make us do things we don't want to do. And it doesn't make sense half the time. But my God, if you get on their bad side, it takes forever to get back on their good side. So you better just go ahead and do the right thing, the right thing. I think a lot of people get in trouble with building inspectors because they don't hire an architect than they should have, or they didn't get a permit and they should have. And I know where the gray area is, and I've pushed it to that gray area, but I've never pushed it so far where I pissed off a building inspector. So make sure you treat those people right. The other bucket would be elected officials. And a great way to network with elected officials is contribute to their election campaign. It's not bribery, but you're giving them money. <laughs> and again, this also gets back to networking. If you want to network with people, go to a fundraiser for a candidate and contribute to their campaign by writing a check when you enter that fundraiser and meet their people, meet that official. They might get elected and then you know them. So again, that's the power of networking, but also comes with writing a check. Carl Linder was famous for, if there were nine people running for city council, it didn't matter what party they were in, they all got $50,000 because he wanted them to pick up the phone when five of them got elected. Yeah. How has your networking with politicians been advantageous to your development deals? It's not like you've got people in your back pocket. It's just you're putting your networking out there, whether you're networking with politicians or just people you meet at a meetup. It's just one more layer of getting out there and networking. So I wouldn't say that networking with politicians gives you some kind of special favors or any kind of magical powers. It's just one other layer of people you're networking with who are keeping their ears open for deals for you. And if you ever need to call them, you get a call back because politicians are just like other people. Most politicians don't make enough money to, to retire on this. Most politicians, especially local city council people, and local city mayors, it's practically volunteer. Does anyone else have a question they'd like to ask? Thank you for tonight question how did you stay motivated through that whole downturn of 2008 and can you talk a little bit about that how you just kept going because you know that's obviously a rough point for everyone honestly i had nothing else going on i mean i had no other alternatives <laughs> it was like part of it is you get emotionally invested you know when you own a house or you renovate a building when you've gone through that creative process now it's your baby you don't want to let go of your baby so there is kind of an emotional attachment and i would say the emotional attachment kept me going and also just knowing that if you stick to it, things will work out. I've read The Art of the Deal by Donald Trump, and he talked about sometimes you actually do want to go through bankruptcy because then you can renegotiate better terms. So maybe in the back of my mind, there was like, okay, somehow this chaos is going to bring some kind of opportunity as long as I'm in the middle of the chaos and not completely checked out of it. And part of it's just you have to always be tenacious. You have to practice being tenacious by never giving up. Hi, Glenn. Hi, Darren. We talked a lot about networking and building relationships. So I was curious on the most creative way you've ever actually found or gotten a property. There are a lot of creative ways I've gotten properties. The one story I like to share was the guy that would cut my hair told me that a house had burned down in Kenton Hills, which is a beautiful neighborhood right by Dries Pavilion in, in Davu Woods. A great view overlooking the city. This guy burned down his house. Nobody can get hold of him. The neighborhood is all mad. So I found out who the owner was and he was this crazy recluse. And I went to his house to knock on his door and make him an offer. And it was like silence of the lambs. I mean, it was like, <laughs> hello. <laughs> Actually, he wouldn't even answer the door, but there were about 300 beer cans in his front yard. 
He would just drink his bush light and chuck it out the window. And I looked in his window and he was a hoarder and he had these like pathways of garbage, pathways through the garbage in his house. And I saw the back of his head. He was watching TV and I'm knocking on his door going, you better answer because I want to make you an offer in your house. And he wouldn't answer. He wouldn't answer. Wouldn't answer. I left. So I bought a 30 case of bush light. Yes. And I hired DHL or City Dash to courier it over. But before I sent it over, I typed up a letter and I put it in a weatherproof sheet protector because I didn't know if it was going to rain that day. And the letter said, Dear Mr. Corman, I'm interested in your house on 1111 Sunset. I would like to make you a generous offer. And I use the word generous because it's ambiguous enough. Generous in favor of who? I don't know, but it's going to be a generous <laughs> offer. So I had City Dash deliver the 30 case of Bush Light. And I think it was like around December 20th because he called me back on December 21st and said, Glenn Kukla? I said, yeah. He goes, this is Robert Corman. I was like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. I've been trying to get a hold of you. He goes, thanks for the Christmas present. Let's talk about selling my house. So that's how I got his attention. He was literally a recluse that nobody could get hold of because he didn't want to talk to anybody. But I found the one thing that got his attention. Now, he also went dark about a few weeks after that because, again, he just was in and out. So I bought the tax liens on the property, knowing that if he ever tried to sell it to anyone else, at least I'd have some kind of way of getting a hold of him, at least later on in the process. I really wanted that property. I also got hold of his brother. And again, this is kind of a relationship thing. And it's not that I had a relationship with, I didn't know his brother, but I knew he had a brother who was an investment advisor, lived in a nice part of town. I got hold of his brother and said, your brother is going to go to jail because he's neglecting this property. It's burning down. It's got tax liens. It's got work orders against it. I will buy it from him and make this problem go away. I will take away all his problems and all your family problems if you just tell your brother to sell it to me. So the sane brother called the insane brother and said, sell the property to Glenn. And the insane brother sold it to me. So part of it is just getting to know the people around the seller and befriending them and saying, look, I have a solution to your problem. And the solution is money. (laughs) But it's also taking away all that pain. Awesome. Well, thank you, Glenn. And thank you, best ever listeners for tuning in to our part two with Glenn Kukla at Cincinnati's best ever real estate investor mastermind. If you liked this episode, please do follow our show and subscribe, leave us a five-star review and share this and part one with someone who you think could gain a lot of value out of learning how Glenn Kukla has built his real estate development empire through building relationships. Thank you and have a best ever day.